Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This to me is like the really fascinating material. We don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind-blowing. We can't just believe that it was. Very interesting book, very interesting concepts. Uh, do you, you don't consider yourself a, well, intelligent design, but do you, cause you don't consider yourself kind of like a religious, um, well, I think if, as you, if you have a chance to get through the book, you'll, you'll see that I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've looked ahead into some of the religion stuff, but just to, just to give people kind of an idea of where you stand, because uh, right. everybody like looks at intelligent design, this concept, and they say that you know, well, that's a religious thing that that has yeah. so many that's religious a- aspects, and it's looked at, I think, unrightly so, negatively for the most part. Yes, that that creates a a difficulty for me because I'm n- neither in the evolutionist uh, materialist camp or the religionist camp. So where's my audience? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, the objective is truth, and if that's where the truth leads us, that's where it leads us. But uh, as you see, as I go forward in the book, I mean, uh, you know, I deconstruct evolution then i deconstruct religion and then i 
get into a discussion of what is reality, what is consciousness, what is uh, one of the things that, that happens as I get through the the evolution chapters, you, you see that there's um, incredible, incredible evidence that there's some kind of an, uh, incredible intelligence behind our existence. But then I get into consciousness and uh, uh, mind outside of matter and uh, life beyond death. And what does that mean? Why is there evil in the world, mm-hmm. you know, given that there is a uh, creator why why would evil be cur- uh, permitted and so forth so there's 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 hope in the message too but first you've got to de- deconstruct the falsehoods namely evolution and religion before yeah. you can pave the way to get into and open your mind to to seeing these these other things that that seem weird if you're holding these other other beliefs what is your what is your background because I've done a little bit of research on you, I know that you're a, a nutritionist. But what is uh, what is uh, well, your background? Uh, well, I'm a. Uh, I was uh, my undergraduate was in biology and chemistry. Then I got huh. a doctorate doctorate in veterinary medicine. Then I transitioned into uh, uh, nutraceuticals, nutrigenomics, nutrition, and so forth. Okay. So I mean, having that background in veterinary medicine, a background in in chemistry, I mean, do you you feel like you've you you have some you, you're not totally untrained in this like in this kind of field like bio, biology. No, I think that that's you know that's really helped me yeah. sort through through the information, and of course, school is just the beginning most of. Education begins after that. If well, I agree with that, if you're a curious sort of person, and that's where I think I really did my learning. But I mean, I'm glad I had this scientific, uh, medical, biological background that that gives me confidence in those areas. Yeah, absolutely, um, and I agree with you. Uh, but once you get out of school, it does that doesn't mean that learning ceases. I think no, I've hopefully. learned more since I've been out of school than I ever did in it. For sure. (laughs) So, uh, you talk about a concept, and I I noticed that this is a theme in some of your other books. I looked at the back of the book, and you have your other books listed. But this this concept of as if thinking matters. And uh, can you define that and also how that applies to looking at um, or disproving evolution? Sure. I mean, I think that uh, you've got you have to start from somewhere if you're going to try to answer the big questions. You know, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? And uh, most people just uh, go with prevailing opinion or uh, what their parents taught. And I mean, that's that's really not the the way to to find truth you know i think what Mm -hmm. person needs to do is really tap into their own reasoning powers and basically i think truth can is evident to us each one of us and we don't have to consult a guru or a stone tablet that was etched on in the bronze age or 
uh, you know, some expert or authority and so forth. We all of us have it within us, the ability to, to de- determine truth. Well, let's get into what you talk about in the book. Uh, this was this was interesting to me about thermodynamics and biogenesis and chemistry. And right. you start off simple. I mean, you know, the, the, the two laws of thermodynamics, basic laws. But let's talk about how those, we could start kind of building this case against evolution or natural selection evolution with just the laws of thermodynamics. So how does, how does that work? Okay. Well, just to preface that, I just wouldn't want your listeners to think that that getting into these what would sound to be pretty esoteric scientific fields are, are something that they need to get a real grip on to, to come to any kind of conclusion about evolution versus uh, uh, intelligent uh, design. I, I think that Again, a person just needs to to reach within to their own reasoning power, uh, look about them at the natural world and their own experiences, and they can make make determinations that way. But just just to go through some uh, some examples of uh, well, let me <laughs> back up again and say first of all, evolution is is uh, touted to be the scientific explanation for how we got here. And basically, you can't hear anybody any anymore who does not seed uh, their conversation, particularly if they're talking about science, with the word evolution. I mean, you could easily substitute in God, and, and there would no meaning would be lost. But it's it's just kind of the default setting for for so many people. And so, if that's the case, then then there should be good science proving it. So all we have to do is just go to what we know about nature and about reality and see whether uh, uh, real science, uh, uh, I mean, whether evolution accords with that or uh, it it points to an intelligent causation behind all of this that we see around us. So just, uh, just to start very simply, there's a law in science called the law of biogenesis. The law of biogenesis simply states life can only come from pre-existing life. It's a very, a very simple takeaway from that. And that law was put in place because way back when people used to see uh, bugs and worms and so forth coming out of, out of the ground or out of piles of manure, and they were thinking that, that uh, if you just let this kind of material just sit long enough that life would spontaneously emerge out of it. And then guys like uh, Pasteur and Reddy and Spallanzani disproved it by taking the manure and and, uh, pasteurizing it or killing anything that could possibly be in it. Then they just let it set and nothing comes out of it. And so they discovered that the only reason that that life comes out of what, what is apparently inorganic or lifeless matter is because there's pre-existing life there in the form of larvae or microbes or eggs and so forth. So again, that, that law in itself proves that uh, we are not the mere product of, of atoms mixing together because that law has never been proven false. 
what uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you see do you see how that that applies? See, evolutionists have to get back. They can't just talk about. Uh, we'll get into that in a moment. They can't just yeah. talk about how that uh, animals change color or uh, things about fossils, and they got stories about how eyes begin with ancient eye spots and creatures and things like. They got to get back to the very beginning. And, and right. where did life come from in the first place? And they're, and they're going to say, well, you know, if you, if you mix atoms together long enough, you're going to get, uh, you know, some amino acids, and then amino acids are going to form proteins, and then you, you're going to get the components of nucleic acids like DNA and RNA, which would be the, uh, the, uh, the different components of those. The, uh, which is an extraordinary nitrogen. complex structure. When you yeah, really sit down yeah. and think so, about it, right. So the point is, is that you know that, but their their thinking is that that all happens spontaneously. That yeah. is within the nature of matter to basic basically uh, have life emerge out of it. But they have not a shred of proof. Nothing. They have never in all these in hundreds of years in trying in trying to. Yeah. Uh, create life, you know, in a test tube. They have never been able to do it, even with all of the intelligence that they can bring to bear on it in a laboratory. They cannot create life out of inorganic elements or just the basic components of life. So, you know, how, how, is, that a, how is that a scientific uh, conclusion, that therefore life comes out of inorganic life? It's not. You know, what a science is that, Life requires pre-existing life. Well, what's funny, so that, what's funny about that to me is that when they're trying to, like, I, I, I believe that they have have like made amino acids, but even then it's taking an intelligent being such as a human to do all that. It's not just happening by like a random chance. I mean, the people are actually doing it. So even yeah, at that course, point... <laughs> It just kind of falls down, right? Right. I mean, that's uh, we. I have a cartoon in in my book that where there's a, a scientist in a laboratory, and he's got all kinds of test tubes around him, and he's got an award, fifty years of dedicated research, and he's there uh, messing around with his test tubes and that. And he says, if I if I can only create life here today, I'll have proven no intelligence was necessary in the beginning. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, it just makes your point. Yeah. But uh, again, there are, there have, there are uh, scientists who work in this biopoiesis field, it's called, where they are trying to mimic, you know, early Earth conditions and get uh, life to emerge out of it. And they have, uh, there's a, experiment that was done many many decades ago by Miller and Urey where they 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 created what they believe would be the primitive atmospheric gases and some of the other conditions that they thought were in the early earth and they discharged sparks in it and they were able to get some amino acids there um, well of course the question is well, did they really duplicate what the early environment was or not but in any case sure. yeah scientists in can synthesize amino acids, but just just let the amino acids sit there and then see what happens. They just sit there, or they degrade back into their original components. And the other thing is, is that 
the amino acids in life are all of a particular variety. There's each amino acid, you know, whether it's alanine or methionine or threonine, these different amino acids can exist in uh, what are called different uh, stereoisomeric forms, so a left-handed form and a right-handed form. Now, if you take your left hand and your right hand and you put them together like you're going to clap, you see that they match. But if you take your right hand and put it over top of your left hand, you'll see that they don't match because one is right-handed and one is left-handed. And that's exactly what the amino acids uh, can exist in. They can exist in either this right-handed form or a left-handed form. They're called the L form or the D form. And life only has the L form. But in any kind of uh, experiment where you're just producing amino acids, just uh, you have the components and you put all the conditions there to have the amino acids form, you always get a 50-50 mixture of DNL. And that, so that cannot be the precursor of life. But again, amino acid is, is nothing. You know, it, it's, it's hardly even a beginning. Um, and it's certainly not anything that would make us conclude that life can come from non-life. Right, which is what they they want to believe, you know, the, the primordial, primordial soup idea that somehow right. it just, like, springs forth. And, and there, there's this other idea that, I mean, is interesting to me, and, like, the... the um, I've forgotten the na- the the name of it, but it's the the idea that er- panspermia, that life comes yeah. from space, but that yeah. just pushes it out even further of just saying, well, where did that come from? Sure. You know, wh- yeah, I mean, it just just passes off the ultimate question. Yeah, it passes the buck basically. <laughs> and the only reason the only reason they've they've done that is because guys who have really looked into this, you know, can we, can we create life just from inorganic elements? They've, they've not been able to do it. So they, they just just pass it off. But in the meantime, you know, never, ever doubt, you know, what no one is sure about. And they, they just keep talking about the truthfulness and the scientific nature of evolution. And so it's very first step is not scientific at all. Science is observation and repeatability. Right. Scientific method. Yeah. yeah, we've never observed life coming from non-life, and no experiment has ever been done that would be able to repeat that. So it's it's not scientific. There's something else. You know, an interesting, another interesting thing about uh, when you're talking about just the chemistry and the formation of these basic molecules of life, like the amino acids, and then there's the sugars, um, and then there's the components of, of uh, the nucleic acid, the DNA and the RNA, which would be the uh, nitrogenous bases and the ribose sugars that are in those uh, helixes. Um, those are all what are called condensation reactions. So if you take the, the, the basic, let's just go to the amino acids, and, and if you take the basic components of an amino acid, uh, the carbon, the hydrogen, the oxygen, the nitrogen, and uh, in some cases sulfur and so forth. If you take those basic constituents and you mix them together, what what would you guess that 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 in order to duplicate the early Earth environment, what what kind of a solution what would you mix those amino acids in? Would you think? 
I would have. What what are we what are we made out of? Well, water. I mean, what's yeah, most primarily of our... water. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember the 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 old the, the I, that's another so-called proof of evolution is that we're seventy percent water and it, you know it's mm-hmm. kind of matches seawater. So yeah, you're yeah. right. So yeah. they they would take those they would take those basic components and put them in water. And in fact, the the argument is is that life could never have arisen on this planet without water. So first of all, the Earth had to cool for a billion years for water to even form. And then when water formed, it's believed that these basic components, the nitrogen, the oxygen, the sulfur, the hydrogen, and so forth, got together in the water, and then they uh, formed these amino acids. Forgetting the problem that if they did form, it would be uh, a mixture of DNL, which would not be sufficient to to cause life as we see it on this planet anyway. The, The reaction... The, the reaction of those basic elements to form amino acids are w- w- what are known as condensation reactions. So if you can just picture in your mind, picture these on the left side, you can picture carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, and so forth. And then they get together and then they go to the right and they form an amino acid, which is those things all tied together in a three-dimensional form. But you have to remember that in this whole milieu that's that's going on here, there's water. And one of the things that happens is when those uh, constituents of amino acids combine to form the amino acid, they yield also water. That's why it's called a condensation reaction. Mm -hmm. So when the reaction occurs, water condenses out of it. So the importance of this is that these reactions are always reversible and they're always going to go in the direction where there's the most ingredients. So if this is all occurring in water, the right side of the reaction where where the, the end product, the amino acid, forms and forms the water, it's already going to be in a water mix. And so there's going to be a huge amount of water there and that's going to drive that amino acid right back to its starting materials. It's going to basically yeah, I mean, my, degrade, essentially. Right, because yeah, back yeah, to its because components. It's called the, yeah, it's called the the law of mass action. Yep. Whichever side of the reaction has the most mass, it's going to go the other way. It's just like if you have a, you know, I don't know, like you, if you have a lot of anything, it, it kind of falls down or rolls apart or comes apart and so forth. And so that's, that's, that's what one of the problems that you've got going on there. So even just to form amino acids and not only amino acids, but every other constituent, every other biochemical in life, the lipids, the fats, the oils, the, the sugars, um, the proteins, the nitrogenous bases, all of these things are condensation reactions. And so the in a watery watery milieu, they'd all go to the left to the starting materials, not to the more to their more complex form. Yeah. So uh, does that take care of that? Where I hope we haven't lost the chemistry. And and again, if they want to, if anybody wants to understand that more completely, I've I've got all this information. We're putting together uh, YouTube videos that will go through all of this as well as podcasts that go through all of it. And then I have a book that encapsulates it all. Nice. That's very cool. 
yeah, it it seems just looking at like especially like the thermodynamics section or the idea of entropy, uh, this idea that things that things decay. Um, in other words, like just the existence of life from what you've just described essentially defies some of these laws. That's kind of where you're going yeah, they, with that. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just for your audience, the, the thermodynamics, uh, uh, there's several laws there, but the second law is particularly uh, relevant here because it's basically states that things always go from order to disorder, you know, from complexity to loss of complexity. Yes. And, and what, what is evolution? It's the exact opposite of this law. Yeah. I mean, you're starting with random atoms, and you end up with something like the human brain. It just, uh, you know, it just defies. Um, I mean, that's common. I mean, again, we're talking very sophisticated thermodynamics. If anybody wants to go on the internet and just look up thermodynamics and try to get into the the um, uh, mathematics and so forth involved in this enough to give anyone a headache. But the basic takeaway is that, you know, things go from a ordered state to a disordered state. It's the reason that, that people can't make uh, uh, perpetual motion machines. There's always a degradation. Everything degrades. Mm-hmm. You know, don't keep your house nice and neat and tidy and it degrades. You know, if you don't keep your car up, it degrades, you know, look in the junkyard and see what happens. You don't see new Lamborghinis coming out of it. You know, you, everything <laughs> just, every, everything degrades. The whole universe is, is moving toward this more degraded state where there is no hot spots, anything, everything will be just a cold, even dark, you know, randomness. So just, Again, you know, a person, this is just common sense. You know, we see it all around us. You know, complex things don't spontaneously emerge out of simple things on their own. Now, the only reason that we see complex things around us other than in nature is because of the inner, the injection of our intelligence, our engineering. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, that's not something that evolutionists want to insert into their equation. Yeah, just as an aside, why is there, why is there this? Is it because of the animosity that religion put towards science in the beginning, and then now what science puts towards religion that it's so hard for most people of science to accept this? Like, why is there such a stake yeah. in just saying, you know, well, we we really don't know what it is. There could be a driving force. I, I've I don't really. I mean, I guess I do understand it, but at the same time, I think that there's like, what would be the the, the harm in admitting something like that? Well, they think that it. They think there's only two choices. Yeah, most people think there's only two choices. You either believe in materialism and evolution. Or you believe in religion, so uh, scientists can't can't uh, really uh, bring themselves to the 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 sorts of things that religion represents. It's you know, and it's has nothing to do really with reason. It has to do with faith. 
-hmm. It has a uh, horrendous history. The Inquisitions, the witch trials, um, the Crusades, the, I mean, all you have to do is go to, go through, go to get on a plane these day, days and go through what you're going through just to get on a plane to see the evil, you know, that, that religion can do. And so, and also religion in the past stood in the way of any kind of progress. You know, there was a time when even uh, that, that people were not even allowed to read the Bible, just the hierarchy in the church could read the Bible. And then for a thousand it years. was, uh, yep. yeah, and then you couldn't uh, translate it. You know, uh, Tyndale and others who did, you know, these people were killed, you know, because of, of doing things like that. And then, you know, and interpreting interpreting the world other than through the lens of the Bible was just considered a horrendous sin. You know, the fossil, when fossils were found, they were thought to be just kind of uh, uh, God's uh, uh, playthings. <laughs> they, they weren't even recognized for what they are because the, the argument was that there could have been no death before Adam and Eve. So there could be no, could have been no fossils. Yeah. And you've got, and you've got guys who, who, who had, have calculated that, uh, you know, that according to religion that the earth is 4,000 years old. And mm-hmm. that's all done by, by going through genealogies in the Bible and so forth. But, I mean, we can get into religion later on. But I think the, the, main, the main problem here is that most people think I either have to believe in materialism, evolution and atheism and agnosticism that's kind of a group if you will or i have to believe in some kind of religious nonsense and since people can't get into the religious nonsense thing they and they're they think that they're uh, thinking people they 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 stay in the the materialistic uh, evolutionary atheistic side and so uh, I think that's the the main reason, but a lot of a lot of people because we're schooled from the time from the earliest uh, biology class that kids get in grade school, they're indoctrinated with evolution, and then into high school, and then into college, and then people uh, are uh, scientists are in a position uh, career wise if they're if they're in, in academics or uh, no matter where they are, I guess if they were to argue something other than evolution, they just would be persona non grata. So there's that kind of pressure as well. But people don't realize that there's a third option, and that is uh, yeah. that is secular creation, that we are the product of an intelligence but it has nothing to do with religion. Is and the way, this... One of the ways I, I wrap my, my head around this is that, okay, so what, what is this intelligence or what is this whatever? And then I have to, I have to stand back and humbly admit certain limitations. I, I know that in the way I, I look at it is I know infinity exists, but I cannot comprehend it. I mean, I know in time it seems like you know, that infinity has to be able to go both ways. 
In distance, it seems like it can go both ways. In bigness and smallness, it can go both ways infinitely. Now, I, I can't comprehend that. So if, if that's a reality that I know exists, infinity, and I can't comprehend it, what, why should I believe that I should be able to comprehend the intelligence that was responsible for creating this incomprehensible complexity in yeah. the universe and in the human body and everywhere we look. Um, it's, you know, the, the, uh, the complexity of, of life is just so staggering. I, I, it's, there's just no way to think about it other than there's got to be some kind of intelligence behind it. I, I can get into that a little bit more in terms of what, what are the features that we see around us that actually point to an intelligence. Uh, but let me, let me just touch on a few other, uh, like, disproofs of evolution, if you will. One sure. is... Because I was going to uh, ask you about we the know fossils, that, too, about some of the problems sure. with them, yeah. Now, we know DNA uh, is responsible for uh, the information that, that codes our bodies, you know, all of our physiology and anatomy and so forth. And uh, DNA is, is basically a, a four-letter language, and it's equivalent, like the DNA uh, in in our bodies is equivalent to uh, three quadrillion average size books. In other words, if you, if you put stacked up books on shelves, like you see them in a library and you, you took that shelf and you, you ran it to the sun, you'd have to make 50 trips to the sun to contain the amount of information in the DNA that codes for us. That in and of now, itself is incomprehensible. Yeah, and yeah. what we know for sure is that information, meaningful information that that creates something that's functionally complex, cannot come by chance. I mean, it just never happens. If you if you uh, uh, have any information and you randomly disrupt it or change it, it only degrades. It never improves. If you have random words. Or, or you have a bag full of words or a bag full of letters, you shake them up, you're not going to get information out of that. Information requires an information giver. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting how that, uh, with, with regard to DNA and just its complexity, um, computer scientists are worried about the, the amount of information that is accumulating and how they can store that. And they, uh, uh, within short order here, they're, they're just they're not going to they're not going to be able to even build a building big enough to hold the the you know the uh, the computer storage capability of the information that's accumulating in our world, and so they've been looking at DNA, and one teaspoon of DNA would hold all the information that man has created. Up, up to the year 2011, from the Greeks, all the way from the Greeks up to 2011. That includes all the Facebook entries and the photos and everything. All that information could be contained in one teaspoon of, of DNA. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> how, does, how does something like that come into existence just by mixing 
atoms yeah. together. It's just yeah. so so impossible. And talking uh, talk about possible. One of the things that I well, I've got a chapter in the the law of impossibility. Just and I'm going to talk here about just ones with zeros after them. Um, there are ten or excuse me, one followed by 80 zeros atoms in the entire universe. So the way that you would uh, denote that in easier terms, we'd say 10 to the 80th. So there's 10 to the 80th atoms in the entire universe. Now, the universe is believed to be about 17 billion years old. That would be 10 to the 17th seconds. Okay? Okay. So if you can just wrap your mind around that for a moment, just that the right, 10 to the right. 80th half. Okay. Okay. Now then to create just the simplest protein and DNA. And incidentally, DNA cannot come into existence without the existence of enzymes, which are proteins because enzymes are necessary to link up the, the, uh, the letters of DNA. So you need both proteins or enzymes and DNA to even have the basic rudiments of life, even though that still would not be life. And the chance of that coming together would be 10 to the 168th. One chance in 10 to the 168th. <laughs> and uh, Sagan uh, argued that the chance for a simple cell, in other words, you've got the DNA and you've got all the organelles and mitochondria and, and uh everything else within the cell. He said the chance of a simple cell coming into existence by chance would be 10 to the 2 billionth. That would be one followed by 2 billion zeros. Jeez. That's the odds of that happening. Now, the law of impossibility is that uh, people who work in this area in terms of probability have calculated a thing called the universal probability bound. And the most generous number for that would be if something is more improbable than 1 in 10 to the 150th, it's impossible. But yet, I just got through telling you that a simple cell is one chance in 10 to the 2 billionth. So you can see that that creates a you know, very difficult problem. Because you know, ten to the ten to the hundred and fiftieth, one chance in ten to the hundred and fiftieth would be like you going to the uh, local Seven Eleven and buying a lottery ticket every day and winning every time for the next thousand years. Every day. That's the kind of odds we're talking about. It <laughs> would be nice. Yeah, so, yeah, it would be, be nice, but good luck with those odds. Eh? Right, exactly, yeah, yeah. And one of the That's things incredible. that, you know, the other thing, get, getting back to thermodynamics, and uh, evolutionists usually say, well, yeah, well, that didn't happen, but, you, you know, given, you know, billions of years, you know, anything can happen. Well, they don't have billions of years. They've set an age for the universe of 17 billion years. And then it took, it wasn't until the Earth was about, uh, and then the Earth uh, has an age of about uh, 5 billion years. And then the, uh, the Earth didn't cool enough until about 4 billion years ago, cool enough, and then water foam. But yet we have on Earth right now the, 
the very organisms that have been found four billion years ago, unchanged. They're in structures known as stromatolites that are found in, along the shores in, in different places, and they're uh, simple bacteria, and they're exactly the same as they were four billion years ago. So it, 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 someone needs to explain why they did not so-called evolve. They've stayed the same that entire time. And uh, so, and also, you know, just that since the fact, the fact is, is that they've been dated back to 4 billion years, but that's the time when supposedly that water first appeared on the earth. Well, most evolutionists would say you'd need billions of years to even form the simplest living organism. But yet the simplest living organism appeared at the same time that, that water was found on the earth. So just no matter where you go, if you just open your mind up and, and don't, aren't selective with your, your proofs and your evidence and so forth, you can see that it's just uh, evolution is not feasible. It's just irrational. It's not scientific. There's absolutely no proof for it whatsoever. So um, would you like to talk about maybe, maybe we could talk about mutations a little bit, you know, just... Uh, that people think that the way that once life formed, that the right. way different. You want to touch on that, or because it's this whole idea with like a the natural selection that there's a advantageous mutation, and then it then it the speciation happens from there. That's the basically right. Dar, Darwinian concept of evolution, but mutation has also been. And it's weird because mutation is not considered a good thing. But in evolution it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want yeah, you don't want to store nuclear waste under your bed at night, hoping for a <laughs> beneficial mutation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, mutation mutations are, are carcinogenic. Yeah. You know, tumor causing. And another interesting, you know, right, you know, moment by moment, every day we experience thousands of mutations in our body. And the only re reason we stay alive, and those do not all uh, develop into various kinds of damage, metabolic damage or, or uh, cancer, is because of mechanisms within the body called DNA repair mechanisms. So uh, if you can imagine that, uh, a string of DNA and the, the letters in DNA the, um, are all lined up in a particular way and, and a uh, mutagen or chemical or an X-ray or uh, something damages the DNA and that, that order that language is, is damaged. There is uh, hundreds of chemicals uh, in a mechanism called the DNA repair mechanism that go along the DNA chains and find those, those areas of damage and repair them, restore them back to their original, uh, original form. So the only reason we're alive is because mutations are fixed. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, uh, evolution would have us believe that we're here because of evolution. 
But mutations are nothing but random disruptions in information. We've already talked about information, how information cannot come into existence on its own without some intelligent input. And then once information is there, it can't survive random disruption. It, it degrades, you know, the old thing where if you, you, you give a sentence to a person in a classroom, a child in a classroom, and ask them to pass the, the, the sentence around by the end of the classroom. The sentence is nowhere near what it was when it began. The, the game of telephone? Right, pardon the, me? The game of telephone. Is what you're talking about? Uh, I'm not sure about it. Oh, well, you, yeah, the, the, it's, you, you say something to someone uh, from from one point and it goes down the line and it's a completely different, it's a completely different saying by the time you get to the last person. Yep. Yep. yep same thing. And then selection is, uh, is, uh, creates nothing. It simply calls. So selection is not a creative thing at all. In order to get something new, you have to change genetic material. Now people are going to think think well geez you know look at look at all the uh, varieties of dogs and and look at uh, how uh, bacteria can develop resistance to uh, antibiotics and so on and so forth we can all those kinds of things are cited as supposed evidence of evolution but that's not evidence of evolution it's simply evidence of the ability of organisms to adapt yeah. to vary within within the scope of their kind they never become something other than what they are we have within there is a there is a new genetic uh, field called epigenetics which is really quite uh, revolutionary yes we used to think that we were just locked into dna and the only way change could ever occur is if there uh, if, a, if a mutation occurred. But what we found is that DNA is wrapped uh, with these very complex uh, uh, carbohydrate and protein uh, lipid conglomerations, if you will, that serve as uh, switches that can switch parts of the DNA on and off. And that those switches can be inf- uh, can be affected by the environment, by the food we eat, and by the environment in which we are. Those switches that that epigenetic uh, shroud, if you will, that encases the the DNA, is something that adjusts to the circumstance, if you will, and then it can switch parts of the DNA on and off. But what you see happening. Uh, so, so in other words, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, creatures could change size or uh, ability to withstand cold or heat or so on and so forth. And you can see that kind of variation around the world in different creatures of the same uh, species, if you will. Or a better term is called a syngamion. A syngamion is a creature that is. Uh, remains within itself. In other words, it interbreeds with itself and doesn't doesn't go beyond that. 
So these syngamians can vary uh, quite a bit, but that variation does not equal evolution. It simply means it's, it's simply the switching on and off of the genetic uh, capability that's already within the DNA. Do you, do you understand what I'm talking yeah, about? There, I, I do understand. I do understand. We're not seeing a speciation. We're not seeing something from going from one species to another. Um, Right. And you mentioned dogs. I mean, that's that's basically breeding, which is really human intervention. It's us picking and choosing the traits that we like in a particular animal. But it's still within within the DNA potential of the syngamium. That right. they can be a Chihuahua or all the way to a St. Bernard. Right, but they're still the same species. They're just right. different shapes, right. different sizes. Right. Yes. And you don't, and I think maybe with wolves and, and dogs, I mean, they, they can interbreed. And so there's, but they're considered different species, but are they really? That's, I mean, that's. Some of our well, definitions you, of what species are, you, there's a lot of um, gray area there. Yeah, there you go. You, you hit it on the button. I mean, yeah. a lot of the things uh, have to do with just our nomenclature, what we name things. But it's clearly, as you as you look out in the world, you see birds of a feather flocking together. And uh, just there is this uh, integrity of of kinds, which are, these are called syngamions. I hate to use the word kind because that's a biblical term and that's a term and that's going to turn some people off in a better, more descriptive term is a syngamion. So, uh, again, one of the, one of the, the flaws of evolutionary thinking, there are tools that evolution uses way to the extreme is extrapolation. Like, uh, for example, if, if they can show that uh, moths in an urban environment that were white uh, became, over time, they became more gray to blend in with the sooty industrial environment, that the more gray uh, moths survived more than the white ones, that's proof of evolution to them. That's proof that we humans came from atoms in a, on the edge of a volcano, you know, four million year, four billion years ago. All that is is just again variation within a kind. The epigenetic epigenetic switches that that are can turn DNA on and off, and there can be a natural selection. There's no question that variation occurs within nature. But always within bounds. You ne- you never see a new organ, you know, a new appendage. And one of the things that you'll notice when people do describe evolution, if you ask them, well, how why, how did wings come to be? Well, you know, they'll they'll say, well, first first there were fish, and then the fish, uh, you know, their pectoral fins kind of uh, they started kind of walking in the the shallow sea, and those those uh, fins, you know, turned into more effective fins, so they became feet, and then you got amphibians, and and then you then the amphibians uh, crawled further up onto land, they became reptiles, and the reptiles became, uh, uh, found that uh, just jumping from tree to tree was not as 
as advantageous as actually being able to fly greater distances. So they change their front, so their front feet change into wings, and that's that's the kind of the storybook fashion that uh, evolution uh, evolutionists use to explain um, their hypothesis. But no detail ever, never. Never any step-by-step progression. When I'm talking step-by-step, an evolutionist is going to have to explain biochemically how every single atom and molecule in the leg of the reptile changed from what it was into feathers, step-by-step. And there's none of that ever. You only hear these kinds of stories about how things gradually changed. And it all looks very logical on the outside, but they're just stories. They're like, uh, uh, <laughs> they're just like fairy tales, unless, unless you can put some science there and there's no science there whatsoever. There's even, uh, there's, there's, uh, uh, in the scientific literature, there's, uh, I, I think there's a uh, journal called the Journal of uh, Biochemical Evolution. And there's not one example of a step-by-step progression of biochemically of anything that constitutes life. Not even a theoretical step-by-step, let alone an experimental step-by-step. You know, as you look at your body, at any part of your body, you know, just look close enough, a hair on your kneecap or a, or a, you know, I mean, you don't have to get into the eye or the ear or the digestive system, or the heart, complex the, pace, the pacemaker, yeah. just any, just take one cell. There are millions and millions and millions of components in that cell that are just all interli- interlinked like a machine. And you can't take one of those components away or the thing you know, perishes. Yeah. But true. never is there, has there been an explanation, step by step, how any of this stuff could come to be uh, uh, on its own. You know, one, one biochemical reaction leading to the next biochemical reaction, on and on. And each step being more advantageous than the previous one. Let me, let me just, uh, I don't know how much time we have. Let me just, we were just talking about just the complexity here. Let me talk about... Um, something that's kind of mean. I've got this on okay. in YouTube videos if people want to visit and take a look at that. Um, and I think my YouTube channel is as if thinking matters should should get someone there. But in any case, there is a uh, let, let's say that you were walking on the beach and you looked down and you saw a uh, uh, a set of gears, a tooth gears. And um, yes, I was going to ask you about, this, about the gears. Yeah, yeah. You you took the two gears and you, you put them together, and you saw that the teeth perfectly intermesh. And then you looked over to the side, and you saw a uh, bolt with a uh, with a nut that screwed on it perfectly. And would you would you conclude that that's something that could have come to be there or anywhere on Earth just on its own, given enough time? I would conclude nobody, that somebody, nobody would, made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Some, somebody made. I mean, that clearly has the earmarks of 
of intelligence without without a doubt. In fact, uh, there's if you go back uh, archaeologically far enough, there in in Africa there are uh, stone tools found, and they're called older one stone tools. And if you look if you looked at them, they just they're just stones with just that are just been chipped, so that the edge has like a sharp edge. And when when archaeologists find these chipped stones, they conclude there was intelligence there. With you know just looking at a chipped stone, they conclude intelligence was responsible. So I'm saying, if you saw gears, perfectly intermeshing gears, or you saw a bolt and a nut, you know certainly that would indicate intelligence. Okay, so there's a plant hopper. It's it's called the Isis plant hopper, and it has in its legs intermeshing gears, perfectly intermeshing gears. And in the YouTube video, you can actually see those gears intermeshing as that uh, plant hopper leaps. And then there's a, a weevil, uh, Trigonopterus, and it has in its hip joint, instead of a ball and socket like we have, it has a screw and a nut. The screw is at the head of of the hip, of the uh, leg bone, and the nut is like in the pelvis of the of the weevil. And that screw and nut fit, fit together perfectly. And then the e, you, uh, you know what E. coli is the bacteria you've heard about it how it can be a yes. It's fact you know, it's been in the news recently. <laughs> right with the lettuce it's, it's recall, a, yeah. quite a quite a little quite a little machine in itself yep. it's got uh it moves around by a flagellum it's a it's an acid driven rotary motor and it whips around at twenty thousand uh twenty thousand times a second so you've got wow i've just described you have in nature gears that perfectly intermesh you have nuts and bolts and you have uh, acid-driven rotary motors, just, just to begin. So if, if you look at those things, if you walk along the beach and you see the Isthmus plant hopper or the Trigonopterus wheel or an E. coli, and you look at that and you're going to say, I mean, that's far more complex than these chip stones and far more complex than just, just the, the, uh, the gears and the nuts and bolts because these gear, these, uh, gears and nuts and bolts are attached to organisms with nervous systems and billions of other components all interlinked with these gears and nuts and bolts. How could you possibly conclude anything other than that these were the result of intelligent intervention? That's true. A very interesting picture that you have in the book about that shows this plant hopper and what those gears look like. I mean, that's just amazing. Uh, elect, the electron yeah, microscope the, picture. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, on the, on, In the YouTube video, they've actually got a picture of it actually working. I mean, actually it's moving, yeah. Huh. Yeah, actually moving. But the, those gears are like perfect. I mean, and if you look at each tooth on that gear, is made of millions and millions of atoms. The evolutionist has to explain how each one of those atoms got there. Yeah. By just by just spontaneous uh, mechanisms. It simply just can't be done. It never has been done. I wanted so, to ask you... you know, just, oh, go ahead. 
finish your thought on that. No, go ahead. Okay. Just, just the, you know, just I don't know how. Uh, the, the the point is, is that the evidence is behind. You know that that the the idea that we are a result of intelligent intervention and evolution is 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 certainly a false idea. I wanted to ask you about the DNA when they when they say things like chimpanzees are ninety seven percent similar to us in DNA, and that is often used now as like an uh, a way to say that we we did evolve um, from well we evolved from a simpler form basically. Um, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, what what are we dealing? Well, with? I've got a. Without, I don't, I don't have it before me. But in the book, I've got a, I've got a chapter called uh, "Favorite Evolution Proofs." Yeah, and uh, that's that's one of the things that I address. And so they're 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 arguing that things that are similar prove relationship. So if you're going to use that logic, you know, things similar prove, prove relationship. There are all kinds of ridiculous things that can come out of. Uh, the amount of DNA, the the amount of genes, the similarity between a banana and us is greater uh, using this parameter, uh, a certain parameter, than it is, you know, using the parameter, the same parameter, show us closer to a chimpanzee. You know, so it's just you can only use the that argument that similarity pr- proves relationship. If you're willing to follow through and 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 make all similarities prove relationship, but that re- results in just ridiculous relationships. Yeah, and I, I have that all enumerated in in that chapter in the book. Okay, uh, this idea of the anthropic universe. What uh, what do you mean by that? Just that, just that everything uh, that the everything kind of comes together in such a way that we can, that we survive. Just everything has to be so perfect. The moon has to be where it is and it has to be the size it is. Jupiter has to be where it is and it has to be the size it is. The sun has to be where it is and the size it is. We have to be just everything is interrelated in such a way that it can't be more or less than it is. Or, you know, we could not exist. And it's um, like uh, just uh, if you combine, like, for example, if you if right now you and I are are uh, spinning on the earth, the earth is spinning on its own axis. But the earth is also moving around the solar system. But the solar system is also moving around the galaxy. And the galaxy is moving through the universe. If you total those speeds all up, right now we're traveling at a million and a half miles an hour. How, how can that happen? That's how, amazing how can to we, think about. Yeah. How, can, how, how can we exist for another second? And, and I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, uh, just things are too perfect. It's just like our body. You know, nobody really understands what life is, and that's one of the things that that I, I think that that anybody who has a question about 
about uh, about this. They should just go into a biochemistry book and just just browse through it and just look at at some of the uh, the biochemistry that goes on in the body. And this is only a fraction of what's really going on. It's only what's known at this time. Or go to a cytology book, which is the study of cells and the, all the things inside of a cell. Or a histology book and study all the things within tissues. And then study each of the organs. And all of these things are machines within machines. Inside of a cell, there are organelles like the like the mitochondrion. If, each day, we uh, the mitochondria is responsible for producing energy, the ATP molecule. And each day, those mitochondria, uh, my, mitochondria in our body produce our body weight in ATP. If they stopped working, we could survive for about 15 seconds. So, and, but for that mitochondria to work requires millions of other components all integrating constantly relentlessly, practically without error in order for us to survive. So just each breath we take, each heartbeat we have, it's, it's such a testament that there is so much more going on than just atoms bumping, bumping together. Yeah, very true. Uh, in the time that we have left, I want to talk to you a little bit about this evolution, the impact on our society. What, because uh, you do, you do list some some negative consequences from this belief about of uh, about evolution. Well, for you know, just uh, apropos for for your program and your audience is how that evolution the the notion that we just spontaneously came to be on this planet as a result of just natural law and matter kind of stands in the way of really opening your mind to uh, the idea that we are something other than matter that consciousness is is something outside of our brains that the brain is not us that our consciousness exists separate and apart from us and therefore can exist after we die. Those things are just hard for an evolutionist or a materialist to, to get a handle on because they, they just think that everything is re, reducible to atoms that were just biological robots. And yet, you know, uh, just, just the existence of free will, the fact that, uh, during the course of a, of a day, we have free will and uh, can choose and, uh, you know, good and bad and so on and so forth. That the existence of free will uh, cannot be explained by atoms. And yet uh, the evolutionists and materialists would say that the, that the brain is the explanation for us in our entirety. But yet if you break the brain down far enough into its, you know, its, neurons and then into its cellular components and then into its biochemicals and ultimately into its atoms. Those atoms simply obey natural law. They don't have free will. All atoms, you know, behave in a particular way that's dictated specifically by natural law. So atoms don't have free will. So neither do molecules have free will. So how on earth do we have free will? So that speaks to the notion that, that 
we are other, that's something above and beyond that. And um, I'm just just saying, just pointing out here how that materialism and evolutionists locks us into an entirely different mindset that doesn't allow us to to see the the obvious. And you know, in medicine, for example, uh, evolution. Uh, the evolutionary idea, the materialistic evolutionary idea, just assumes that the body is just matter made up of a variety of chemicals that we can we can add to or delete with impunity, without consequence. And we can see right now the modern medical paradigm is pretty much guided by evolutionary materialistic view, where they basically try to force the body with drugs and pharmaceuticals into submission and as a result we are we spend more on medicine in this country than any other place in the world but yet we're like 60th in the world in terms of health mm-hmm. so it's it's uh just uh the materialistic view just is a uh, and the other thing is is that you know it it uh it's pretty hard to derive any any kind of morality or ethics out of evolution True. because evolution is ultimately, you know, survival of the fittest. Yeah, that is You know, true. might makes right, might makes right, you know. Mm-hmm. So how, how, do you, how do you ever develop any sort of notion of right and wrong out of that? There's, there isn't anything right and wrong. I mean, we are just a biological robot here for a time and then we're gone and that's it. We return to just the atoms. So, does that kind of answer your question? I mean, it does. It basically pervades everything. It pervades uh, politics. It pervades religion to a degree. For those, I mean, even some religions have true, adopted yes. have adopted evolution into their thinking. And um, it, it, I, I can't. Uh, I think one of its most striking or it's close to home uh, effects is just on on health and the way that uh, modern medicine treats health problems as just a, a material matter and, and not not something that is um, requires a more holistic approach and we also got these there are also ideas like social Darwinism and eugenics. These ideas sure. had a very negative effect on like the, on the sure. 19th and 20th centuries. And we're still dealing with that yeah. legacy. We really are. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's because bad ideas create bad consequences. Whereas yeah. on the other hand, other hand, we, if we just reach within, like I mentioned at the beginning of all this, you know, in order to come up with answers to these big questions, you know, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? You use reason, you know, you use evidence, you look at natural laws, and you use intu- intuition. And then each of us have within us conscience. And somehow that has been implanted in us, that we all intuitively know right from wrong. Uh, we don't need religion. We don't need a holy book to tell us right from wrong. In fact, if you, if you ask any person in religion if they can describe anything within their religion, that uh, uh, 
any ethical thing within their religion that they could not derive from their own conscience or be able, unable to do it. You know, it's 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 in with within each of us. So that's uh, I think another testament that that we are created things. We're here with an innate sense of right and wrong, and our purpose is to listen to that voice and to try to live it. So. Do you still have the uh, Do you still have the cat that you uh, write about in the book? Oh yes. <laughs> in fact, I had to uh, make sure I we're we're pretty cold here where I am right now, and I had to close him out because he's outside right now, and he kind of gets a little upset once it gets cold, and he gets pretty melty about it. <laughs> so what is he again? What's his? Uh... He's, he's a he's a part bobcat, and lynx, and domestic. Wow. <laughs> yeah, quite a personality. He's just—he's like a person. He's just—he's like a dog. He follows you around like a dog, and and reacts with you like a dog. It's really quite something. Uh, was he? Uh, yeah. Was he bred, or was he more? Yeah, they're they're. It's a specific breed. You know, okay. That, that. Yeah. And see, those three animals are so close to each other; they can interbreed. Yeah. So. Well, uh, Doctor Weissel, uh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. I just say, but they're they're not becoming dogs or donkeys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still remaining basically a cat, right? <laughs> yeah. Doctor Weissel, tell everybody where they can get the book and contact you, and uh, please abs- tell us where you can find the YouTube channel and where you're going to find your podcast that you're going to put out. Uh, the best thing to do is just go to asifthinkingmatters.com, okay. asifthinkingmatters.com, and on there they can uh, find out about the YouTubes, they can find out about the podcasts, uh, the, the book is described there, uh, this latest book, the second edition of Solving the Big Questions as If Thinking Matters is there. But as I said, you know, they... They don't have to spring for any money if they don't want to. I'm trying to make it all available to people free on podcasts or YouTubes. And, um, so that's, that's the best, best way, just as if thinkingmatters.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, sir. It's been, it's been a very good interview. I've been, I've really enjoyed it. Um, so, I will uh, now going to turn it uh, to the second part of the show, and guys, we will be back on Conspiranormal. Okay, we're back. It's later on in the day. 
and uh, just did that interview with uh, Dr. Wysong about intelligent design. And so that was interesting. Serfiel, you're here. We're over at Studio B again. We are at Studio B. And we've got Walter Bosley on the line. Howdy, gentlemen. Hello, sir. We, Hello. Uh, I, I realize that I have not really had you on this year other than when I was there uh, recording mm-hmm. in San Bernardino, which was and I just, an interesting experience. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was great to see you out here. We got to you know, show you around a little bit. And um, on the uh, 19th of this month, I went over to uh, Cora Stanton's gravesite where I took you. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Because it was the 103rd anniversary of her death. And uh, so, you know, I go there every year on the anniversary of her, her murder. Yeah, so basically what what we did um, for the audience is that uh, when I was in California, I was there in San Diego visiting my stepson. I took three days and went up to the L.A. area. And I met up with uh, you and Greg Bishop. And where did we? Where was that Redlands that we met up? Yeah, yeah. and we went to um, uh, out to Giant Rock. Yes. and Landers, where it's at in Landers, where the Integratron is, the uh-huh. George W. Van Tassel um, interesting domed structure. Uh, and um, yeah, and then on uh, I don't was it the same day or a, it was a different day that I took you? Yeah, that was on Friday of that week. I came back and yeah. met up with you because I was, I was heading my making my way back on my long trek east. So mm-hmm. I drove because I drove back to Nashville, and I met up with you in San Bernardino. Yeah, I think I showed you the the site at the mall where her body was found, Cora Stanton. For those who don't know the 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 woman who's at the center of the Empire of the Whale mystery, which I write about in my books of that title. And we stood in the parking lot, which used to be the lake. Yes, yes. That part of the parking lot was the south end of the lake. Hey, you know what? I was out walking the dog a little while ago, and I realized that I haven't talked about this much because I, I just kind of forgot about it. But um, it's an Empire of the Wheel for Stanton synchronicity that you'll, you'll appreciate, I think. Um, south of my street where I live, is a kind of a small lake, large pond, whatever, you know, somewhere in between those two. And um, the shape of it and its uh, orientation and the trees that are around it make it a kind of a microcosm of that very lake that was at Arvita Springs in 1915, where Cora Stanton was found dead. And remember, she was found dead at the south end of the lake. Well, back in, I can't remember the exact year, <laughs> it was after I came out with the first book, of course, um, it might have been somewhere around 2012 or 2013, um, a young lady, a local high school student, was out jogging, and she was uh, hit by a car, you know, hit and run, I think it was, and killed, and it was right there at the uh, the south end of that small body of water just south of my house and um for the longest time you know friends and family would leave candles and a little shrine for where it had happened and it dawned on me after about you know a few times because i would i would do my two and a half mile walk every day and i would go right past it and i realized wow there's kind of a, a weird synchronicity there 
in that, you know, this young lady was was killed. But I'm pretty sure it was a hit and run. I don't think they got the person or whatever. So she's unkilled by someone who remains unknown. She's killed by someone who remains unknown at the south end of this little small lake. Um, I, I just I saw the parallel there, the synchronicity. What, you know? When was that? What year was that? Uh, some I, I'm I'm thinking either 2012, 13, maybe 14. Okay, it was somewhere somewhere around there. Around you know not not it was before the 100 year mark, but it's it's the idea that a young woman, you know, killed in in that juxtaposition to that body of water, just kind of south of um, uh, where I live. Considering you know what I wrote about and and uh, just a little synchronicity there. You don't think there's something more sinister to it, or just like just a strange uh, synchronicity? Well, the 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 way the way people drive like complete a holes. I did get to experience that in California. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, in yeah. this neighborhood in particular, overtly no, nothing sinister. But this is an example of how that fabric that's underneath everything works so if you want to look for something sinister you have to say is the sinister aspect which there could very well be is the sinister sinister aspect um to be found in that it would happen as a synchronicity to what i had written now you you got to be careful with that because you know people can drive themselves nuts with thinking you know, yeah. would this have happened uh, where I lived? You know, would this is this following me is really when when you ask something sinister, you're kind of asking is something or someone following you making these things happen? And you could you could argue that. But you have to be careful of that kind of thing, because it, it can drive somebody nuts. And um, so you're getting into. <coughs> The aspects of, of this fabric of reality where, okay, some people believe that we have a finite period here in our lives, and when it's our time to go, it's our time to go. And someone might argue that for whatever reason, this, this young lady uh, was allotted a very short time in this life, and she was going to go whether it was there or by some other unfortunate means. And the thing that really uh, controls synchronicity um, just arranged things to where her her um, defined time to go would just happen to fit within a synchronicitous um, juxtaposition that I would notice. Okay, so in other words, it's not like something is saying, let's make bad, sinister things happen to him because he's poking his nose in this. It's not like, you know, um, I caused it in some karmic way. It's just that whatever, and I do believe it is an intelligence, whatever intelligence weaves the fabric of reality that we all live in for, for their own very various reasons, they make these things happen. Um, Interesting you say that because that was kind of the um, theme of the previous interview that's going to be the first part of this show. So oh, okay, that's, good. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about this kind of 
Excellent. In, infinite Intelligence with uh, Dr. Randy Wysong. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I, I wasn't, but uh, he's got some interesting ideas about intelligent design. That that kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of some of like the Lily ideas of the Earth uh, Quinston's control office and stuff like that. Or the Valis, mm-hmm. like Philip K. Dick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, before we get into like talking about some of the books and stuff, um, what what really got you started in your life thinking, I guess for lack of a better word, more like synchro mystically about just events in your life and putting together these puzzles and research topics? Actually, before we get to that, okay. I wanted to remind Walter <laughs> something. Do you remember, Walter, when we were at Coruscant's grave, that mm, there yeah. was uh, a near accident right in front of the cemetery like yes. i even got you remarking on it on the podcast like we heard like the like just sirens going and yeah so i just thought that was an interesting synchronicity oh too. yeah yeah, yeah like like something you know kind of reminding you that it's there and and anything can can happen it's it's out of control yeah yeah that was that's the way it is so ask the question again what uh, personally really got you started in thinking synchro uh, mystically and it seems like the things you're researching, things in your life pull you into answers. How did that all kind of start for you? What, what got you thinking like that? One Sunday morning in December of 1979, I woke, <coughs> I woke up. And something was different. I lifted my hands up. I looked at them and my first thought was, these are not my hands. These are not the hands I'm used to. I turned and looked at the wall and I saw a texture that I hadn't really noticed before. I got up, walked through the house. I saw my sisters and it was there was this weird detachment between myself and them and you know, I recognized them as, you know, the, the role of my sisters, but I felt no real, it, it was as if I was kind of uh, surprised to see them there. And then same with my mom, I went into the kitchen and my mom was there and I was like, whoa, there's my mom. And um, from that moment forward, my life was never the same as it was up all the years up until I went to bed that night before. And um, the... The, the high strangeness, the various incidents, the, the, from, from deja vu, when I would look in some people's eyes, I would see this illumination that I wouldn't see in everybody's eyes. I would sense a recognition in some people, you know, that deja vu kind of thing. Um, the lucid dreaming you know, with the parts that would come true over the course of 20 years. The, um, uh, one time I was reading a, a novel Okay, and there was something described in this novel that uh, startled me so badly. Um, I saw it so vividly; um, it was as if I was recognizing it. And I literally threw the book across the room and had to get out of my room and go outside because I didn't want to hyperventilate. There was something in there in that book. And interestingly enough, the book was *The Talisman* by Stephen King and Peter Straub, in which a young kid learns to flip into an alternate dimension that coexists with our own, the one that we all know. And there are images in that book that um, I recognized and seemed deeply familiar to me. And and it scared me. Um, so 
it began to accumulate um, just all sorts of any manner of weirdness um, that had happened before my uncle, my mentor, got a hold of me and um, taught me about even more strange things while at the same time recruiting me to go work for Uncle Sam. And um, things continued to get weird under his tutelage. And then, of course, you know, it didn't necessarily stop when I started working for the government. And um, I really credit that morning in December of 1979 uh, with the really being the start of what you're asking. How old were you at that point? I had just turned 16 in 16. Um, early October of that year. So I, I was just 16 for a couple of months. Well, something we've never talked about on this show is your experience in Disneyland. We've actually never discussed this. Really? Yeah, we're oh, ne- wow. not on this show. Okay. Adam Rightly mentioned it early on, like in an episode, and mm-hmm. said your said said your name, and I, uh, I, I then I heard you on Darkness Radio, and that's when I contacted you, and I had didn't mm-hmm. put two and two together that you were the same guy he was talking about. We've that's never actually me. talked about it. Yeah. Really? That yeah. that's amazing. That's uh, well. Should we now? Or yeah, yeah absolutely. Do you want to? Yeah. Well, it, it's really... I don't think Sir Fields heard. I don't know if he's heard this story or not. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it's really uh, very simple. Uh, it, it became weird with time as I, um, and boy, that's, that's a loaded statement right there. I just said it became weird with time. Um, you can say that again, Walter. Uh, it, it became weird as things revealed themselves um over the years but essentially in 1981 i went to disneyland now for those of you who didn't grow up in southern california okay and aren't even for those who have grown up in southern california but are not in my age range okay there was a time children long ago when you could go to disneyland um on a wednesday (laughs) uh you know particularly during the school year in particular that uh, I was just redundant there, particularly in particular, and not experienced a huge crowd from the minute it opens till it closes. Mm-hmm. Um, that th- you could walk around the park, uh, particularly after about seven or eight at night, y- you could be walking through the back areas of Disneyland and maybe see one other person. I mean, that's unheard of today. Okay, even at, at eleven o'clock or midnight when they're getting ready to close, it's just too packed. But back then. Um, they also were still selling the A through E ticket books, the multi-ticket ticket books. And for those who don't know the significance of that, Disneyland used to operate on these multi-ticket um, ticket books where A through E, the E tickets were the best rides. Those were, that was Pirates of the Caribbean. That was you know eventually Space Mountain. That was the Matterhorn. That's where we get the phrase, a real E ticket ride, which was popular about 10 years ago. That's where oh, that really? comes from. Yeah, you'd go to Disneyland, and the e-tickets were the ones you got the fewest of, and they were the most coveted. Now, A, of course, was the simple stuff like the horse and carriage ride down Main Street, or I think it's a small world was an A ticket. Um, A or B, not not much higher than that, or, or not higher than those two, I think. And at the same time, though, they started selling what was called the Disneyland Passport. Now, this is important in the story. That's why I'm setting it up. So my friends and I, we, I think we might have had a day off from school or we went after school because I was a senior 
And so I, I got out of school at like one o'clock. And if I recall, all my friends that went with me were either seniors or had gotten out the year before. So we go to Disneyland on a Wednesday early in the year. I, I'm for some reason I'm thinking February, but I'm not sure of the month now. And um, around nine o'clock p.m. in the nine o'clock hour, we decide to go ride the carousel. Now we would buy these passport tickets that I was getting to. That they would sell the A through E ticket books, but then they would sell the ultimate the uh, the unlimited passport ticket. And you would usually just, instead of getting it messed up by crumpling it in your pocket and keep pulling it out, most people would buy like a character pin. I bought Donald Duck. And you'd pin it to your shirt. So you could just, as you approach the ride, they could see your passport ticket and on you went. Okay. So um, we all got these passport tickets because, you know, native Southern Californians would come here a lot. It's just easier than dealing with the ticket books. And it was worth the money. Uh, which was a lot cheaper back then than it is today. So in the 9 o'clock hour, we decide to ride the carousel. And we're on the carousel. And as we're going around, I noticed an, I noticed an old man. Um, snow white hair, kind of close cropped, a close trimmed, you know, neatly trimmed beard. And a black suit, white shirt, no tie. I remember he was wearing no tie. And he was just standing there. If you know the layout of the park, and he was standing on the pathway between Dumbo, which is at the northern end of Fantasyland, and Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which is at about at the three, uh, the two o'clock or three o'clock position, um, to the obviously to the east side there of Fantasyland. And you know, we go around two or three times, and there's this old man standing there, and I, you know, I would place him at about seventy, is you know my guess, and that's what I thought at the time, you know. Um, and then when we come around again after a few times, he's not there anymore. So I thought, oh, okay. You know, I just happened to notice this old guy. And we get off the ride, get off the carousel, and we proceed to go uh, along the direction in that path where I saw the old man standing. And it takes you back to where the uh, spinning teacup ride is and Alice in Wonderland and then towards the Matterhorn. And there, sitting on a bench um, – in the area of the Matterhorn, I think like under the monorail track area, was this old man. Um, all I can remember is the gist of the conversation. I don't remember the, the specific script to run through and he said and I said. Sure. Um, and for the life of me, I cannot remember his voice. Keep that in mind. I cannot yeah. remember his voice. But uh, so you don't remember an accent or anything. That's like, right. I yeah, don't remember yeah. an accent or anything. So I felt compelled, and I had two friends with me. I felt compelled to strike up a conversation with the old man. It was like he was sitting there waiting, you know, for me to approach. And um, at this point, remember, I'm 17 years old. Um, so I strike up, strike up a conversation with him. Find out this is his first time that he's ever been to Disneyland. Um. He, uh, he, he has only, I think, like two A tickets left in his ticket book. And his demeanor is such that he's just amazed at the place. You know, it's his first time there, but it, you would have thought he'd never even seen anything like Disneyland. He was just wide-eyed and, and like a kid. And um, he... Was just, you know, really chatting, talking. He said his name was Alfred. We introduced ourselves. He said his name is Alfred. 
And, um, it, you know, it was about 930. So I suggested we go on It's a Small World with him because we looked at his ticket book and, you know, of all the things th- that he had left to ride and he hadn't been on Small World. So we go ride It's a Small World with him. And he's just totally, you know, most of us make fun of It's a Small World because it's the actual <laughs> first ride that Disney created. He created it for a World's Fair, I yeah. think, in 1964. And it's it was movable. You could take it apart and transport it. But it was Disney's first attempt at a ride. And um, it has a cheesy charm to it. But this guy was like, oh, my gosh, this is really cool and amazing. So we get off the ride. And um, like I said, it was about 930, 9.30. 45-ish around there. And I just felt compelled. You know, here's a nice old man. I come here a lot to Disneyland, been there a lot. And I thought, you know, it'll be nice. The park's going to be open still for a little while. So I take my passport off my shirt and I pin it onto the lapel of his jacket, his coat. And you would have thought I'd given him a pot of gold. He was so grateful. I mean, it was it was not quite ridiculous grateful, but it was, you know, I said, hey, the park's going to be open for a little over an hour. With this ticket, you can go ride whatever you want as many times as you want till the park closes. And he thanked me and thanked me and, and it, just so profusely. And, you know, we parted ways and, and he went back towards Fantasyland and just kind of we lost sight of him as he got deeper into Fantasyland. And my friends and I, we went on our way to Tomorrowland. Isn't that interesting? He returns to Fantasyland. Um, and of course we go on to the rest of our lives, our future, but it's symbolized by the fact that we went to Tomorrowland. I find, I'm, I find interesting symbolism and things like that. And, uh, you know, we just spent the rest of the evening, you know, feeling like, Oh, I did something nice for an old guy. And I thought that was the end of it. Well, um, it, it, it nagged me. It stayed with me. I increasingly, I couldn't help but think there's something about that old man that, there's something there. there. There was more to this than I'm realizing or that I'm seeing. And uh, let's see, about 11 years later, I'm in Manhattan and I'm working for the FBI. It's 1992, of course. And I go to the bookstore, the Coliseum bookstore. I don't know if it's still there. It used to be down by uh, Columbus Circle. It was within walking distance of where I was working for the FBI and kind of undercover. Um, so I... I go to the our favorite section, you know, UFOs and weird stuff, and I find this book, okay? Um, and my only exposure to the concept of ley lines, which now I came to understand as world grid to alert currents, but we'll use the colloquial term ley lines just to keep it simple. My only exposure to ley lines before that had been in the mid-late 80s when I had read that these guys who um, were studying strange phenomena were the first to make a correlation between um, the intersections of world grid ley line energy, okay, and UFO sightings, hauntings, Sasquatch, the whole thing. And I remember in the mid to late 80s, this was like an amazing analysis these guys had done. I can't remember who they were. And that was the only thing I knew about these so-called ley lines in this uh, world grid current that that really jumped up on my radar. So here I am looking at this book, and it seems to be about, oh, okay, ley lines. It's called The Old Straight Track, and it's published in uh, 1928, right? And I'm looking at this, and I'm going, oh, this is interesting. This is like that stuff, those guys who did the UFO and other phenomena correlation. And I'm saying, let's see, uh, uh, oh, 1928. Oh, the author is Alfred T. Watkins. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Nothing jumped out at me yet. 
So I open up this book and inside there's a photograph of Alfred T. Watkins. And I was just slack jawed because there I am looking at a photograph of the man I met in Disneyland in 1981. Okay. And I'm, I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is Alfred. This is the, and the guy told me his name was Alfred, but this is him. But I'm looking at this photo, and it was obviously taken in the late 1920s or around 1930. And I, I start, you know, looking for, you know, about the author or whatever. And, and I, I find that this Alfred Watkins died in 1935. So I, my head is spinning. I'm like, oh, what the hell? Now, remember, this is 1992 before I ever suspected anything about Disneyland that led to the writing of my book that wouldn't come until 2006. Right. But here's what I found out later in 2006 and seven, when I was researching my book. Okay. The man who physically engineered Disneyland CV Wood, died the year I discovered the Alfred T. Watkins book, 1992. Okay. Yeah. But go back to 92. Um, I, I just, I don't know what to think. I really, I don't know what to think. So again, you know, through the rest of the nineties and through the early two thousands, I have this weird thing that happened to me at Disneyland associated with Disneyland. And then finally in, in, um, 2006, Greg Bishop and I are talking about, you know, stuff about Disneyland on his show. We're talking about club 33, the kind of the, the once more exclusive, but now if you're rich enough, anybody can pay to be a member of it. Um, uh, dinner club at Disneyland. And, uh, you know, we were wondering why do they call it club 33? And we find out, you know, Hey, Disneyland is located at the 33rd degree North latitude. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Cause we already knew about the phenomena between 30 and 40. This is not a new concept, you know, um, this idea that something weird's going on at between 30 and 40 degrees North, you know, latitude around the globe. Uh, but more and more people noticed it and have written about it. So um, that is what all motivated and inspired the book. And in the book, I really try to um, dig into, you know, what's really what's really going on at Disneyland, what could be going on in a person's head while they're in Disneyland, and more specifically, what my experience with Alfred was. Okay, so some questions come up here. Mm-hmm. Why the 33rd degree parallel is so important? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I may have told you this before, but there's some interesting, just interesting aspects of the 33rd degree parallel. Of course, you have sure. Disneyland there. Roswell, mm-hmm. New Mexico is there. Yes. Um, and Charleston, South Carolina where mm-hmm. Albert Pike started Scottish Rite Freemasonry, which, of course, goes up to the 33rd degree. Mm-hmm. And I believe that I have heard... Uh, the, what, what? The Trinity Test Site. Trinity Test Site. Weapon, yes, yeah. yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, we're getting the into... John F. Kennedy assassination yes. is close enough. It's 32.8 or 9. Essentially degrees. there, yeah. Yeah. And Mount Hermon in... Well, I guess in the Golan Heights, I believe, mm-hmm. you know, that's 
in in the, in the book of Enoch, that's where the Watchers came to Earth. Well, also is another Cairo and the Great Pyramid. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, also in that I zone. Believe that's, yeah. that's true. Yeah. And it is a zone. It is a zone. Yes, the thirty third degree has interesting things, but you know, there's other degrees. But a lot of this, you know, it's between thirty and forty that there's something very interesting going on. Yeah, um, around the globe, definitely. Yeah, Mount Hermon is at the thirty third degree, twenty four minutes. 58 seconds north that that widens the scope a little bit as far as 3240 um because i know a lot of like the james shelby downard stuff he's kind of stretching it sometimes it's not exactly 33rd parallel but right if you extend it like that then then i think that fits in yeah when, when you're talking yeah when you're talking uh uh you know uh land you know territory around a planet okay when you're at when you're at 32 and a half or higher, you know, 32.5, 32.8 or whatever, you're getting into the influence zone of the 33rd degree, you know, cause it doesn't necessarily, it, it's not like, um, you know, when you're, 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 you're painting a wall and you got tape along the molding that you don't want to paint. And then after you painted, you peel that tape up and you go, Whoop, see where the, the, see where the colors, the two colors, there's a line between them. This energy will not go beyond that line. It, you know, it. You're going to get some spill, um, you know, a little spillover on on these lines that we I- identify. So, um, yeah. But re- people have to remember that the the first time I ever heard about this phenomenon was not specifically that it was at 33 or or now. You know, we're going to talk about the guy who's done you know 37. It it, it is actually between 30 and 40 degrees. And that that was, I think, the first time I heard about that was at least twenty years ago. A zone the concept's of, been out there. A, a zone of weirdness, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. and and esoteric es, esotericism it, it comes up in as well. So yeah, which I'll, probably has everything to do with energies and the things that we can do um, with these energies. Yes, back to the Telluric current, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about this because I heard an interview with Chet Zukowski on another podcast and um, mm-hmm. he's been talking about the 37th degree parallel mm-hmm. which has a lot of strange things going on there as well I mean you've got mm-hmm. cattle mutilations UFO sightings mm-hmm. Bigfoot sightings this is also I believe in the area of the four corners which has mm-hmm. a lot of strange incidents happening there right? as well. Has, I haven't done it, um, and I don't recall if I came across it before, but the, the question we have to ask is, um, are, is this 40 to 30 degrees north latitude uh, not um, a temperate zone, you know, with nice temperate weather and climate and this, that, and the other, um, we got to ask ourselves, what is the population of the earth? Um, you know, what's the percentage of it that lives within this 40 to 30 degrees North latitude zone? Because a lot of the weird things that people do that we can point to people doing in this zone could simply be because that's where the people are 
So therefore, if there's people, a number of them who are doing weird things, well, naturally, it's going to fall within that zone, right? We have to ask that question. Um, and, and that's aside from the, uh, the business with the energies and what energies they're tapping into. But you follow me? We kind of, um, we, we kind of have to ask that. Is there a, is there a higher instance of weirdness there simply because there's more people there to do weird things? And then is there a parallel? Because what we're talking about is 30 to 40 degree North. Is there a parallel to 40, the 30 to 40 degree South? Yeah. And I've never looked into that to be honest. Yeah. I, I did the Disneyland book, and when I was following up on that, I I, I, I kind of got led into something else, that Empire of the Wheel thing. and <laughs> I haven't. Uh, but you know what? Since you asked that question, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's something that should be looked into. And I, I would have thought I've done it. Be- I would have done it because three or at least two of my three secret missions books and the fourth one here soon um, deal with South American ancient mysteries and things so maybe i will address that in the new book after all but and, i haven't yet and also too um i'm looking at the 37 at the four corners area it's mm-hmm. the intersection of approximately 37 degree north latitude with 109 degree west longitude mm-hmm. so like like it's the those where those those state boundaries are drawn is mm-hmm. actually that actually is the 37th degree parallel Oh, and the, the, that reminds me that in that area, I mean, you've got all these ancient sites too, like the Mesa Verde, which I went to right. a few days after right. I left California. And, and you've got the Sangre de Cristo Mountains near there, right? Yeah. Or is that in thirty-three? I I don't know. Sergio may know. He we know that uh, Tornado Tornado the Del Morto is out there. Right? You're not a Del Morto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got to uh, I got to visit a little stretch of that with um, my uh, good friend and associate who hosts the little New Mexico gatherings that I have been on a few times with uh, Joseph Farrell, Greg Bishop, um, John. Um, oh gosh. Why am I doing a brain dump? Why am I 55 years old? <laughs> uh, John Brandenburg. I'm sorry. John Brandenburg. Uh, he's been on one of those with us. And, and a couple of times we've gone out there and our host has shown us, okay, this is the Hornada del Muerto, this section of it and that section of it. We pull out a map to see exactly where we are. Interesting area. Trinity's out by there, of course. Duh. What was the significance, Sergio, for Downard with those mountains? Uh, I something about the the three sisters or something. I don't I don't recall. Okay. That's, okay. That's one my, Trace yeah. Hermanus, the yeah. mountain range. Yeah, yeah. three uh, sisters. That probably goes back to Macbeth too. There's a lot of yes. I think it has something yeah. to do with that. Yeah. Well, you know, Christopher O'Brien has written some real interesting weirdness about uh, those mountains, and um, there's one particular guy, a mountain man. I never remember his name. I see the photo of him in my head right now. And I don't have the book handy, but the mountain man in the 19th century who um, uh, there were some brothers who were on a murder spree and he had to go. Uh, they were of the, one of the native cultures near there. And he had to he went out as a bounty hunter to go, you know, bring them in. And uh, he had apparently an experience out there in the wilderness in those mountains that he never talked about. And he was a tough, grizzled guy. And it, you know, it 
really got his attention, got to him deep. So it's it's just delicious stuff like that that makes us <laughs> want to go check it out for ourselves. It right? is the land of enchantment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indeed. What's your thoughts on Downard? James Shelby well, Downard. <laughs> I got to tell you, the the uh, essay that um, is co-authored with Michael Hoffman, King Kill 33. Um, I don't know what other people think about it, but boy, oh boy. Wow. Um, there is Hecate through that whole thing. So I think much of that. Um, I absolutely am convinced that they who pulled off the JFK assassination were doing um, the same kind of dark stuff um, uh, specifically associated with Hecate symbolism as I have found in San Bernardino. How much of that do you think is downward and how much is Hoffman? Because that's something I'm kind of really trying to get know. to the bottom of. Yeah, I think there are better scholars than I of Downard. Um, I, I know that Go Rightly could probably answer that, you know, could offer an opinion, an informed opinion on that where I can't. Um, all I know is, you know, whoever wrote what in it, um, it, there's something there, you know, they're, they're essentially right or correct in, um, you know, somebody wove that symbolism in the actions you know, before, during and after. And, um, it's startling from my perspective, you know, with this Hecate mystery and how I've come to know the whole Hecate thing and her, um, it, it's startling and it's, it's just really startling. Wow. Yeah. The, the Hecate stuff I find more and more, maybe it's just because I'm more aware of it since reading your books. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Santa Merita stuff is, Oh, once you are introduced to her, yeah, you see everywhere that she's at. You can't miss her. You have to turn your back on it completely. And then even then, she won't let you turn your back completely. She will remind you every once in a while she's there. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, yeah. One other thing, one other, one thing I heard you speak about early on mm-hmm. was the McStay family. Yes. That's out there in San Bernardino. It's uh, actually north, north. uh, You you have to meander to get up there through the Cajon Pass, but it's out by Apple Valley, which is north of here. Okay. um, I can picture that on the map. Yeah, yeah, 30 or 40 minutes. And what it is is, um, and this kind of talk about startling, you know, the McStay mystery was a San Diego thing, what they call North County, because they were living in North County, and, you know, it's believed that they were seen down by the uh, border. It was a San Diego thing. And when their bodies were found, where they were found, I, I, can't, I can't put it any other way. It was, it was stunning and startling to me because um, here's the thing. The, the exit off the freeway, you know, that is closest, that, that is right across the freeway from where they were found – is not like a major cosmopolitan exit. I mean, you're you've just passed uh, you know old Apple. You've just passed Apple Valley, old Victorville, and you're starting into the desert. There's like a gas station there, and the exit is just kind of a quickly turning little exit onto a uh, you know 
just a desert kind of road, okay? But I used to take that exit every time I went out to Apple Valley to take something to or, or, or pick up my now adopted kid that I talk about because um, she was living out in Apple Valley. So I was intimately familiar with that exit because I was on it two or three times a week. And when they announced where their bodies were found, I here's the thing, you guys. It's like because of the experience I already had with Hecate and the Empire of the Wheel, uh, it's both you're shocked and at the same time, well, of course, that's where they found their bodies. Of course. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And here's the thing. The next thing I did was pull out a map that I'd already had for a few years, remember? Okay? I'd had it for years. I pull out that damn map. I pull out that map, and sure enough, I'm looking at the lines, and where one of the lines goes through that freeway in the Apple Valley area where it splits from one line into three. Three. Uh The main number of Hecate. That is where their bodies were found. Okay? Somebody one way or another, either, I don't know if they were murdered on the spot. My guess is that they were murdered on the spot. We'll know for sure when the trial actually starts and it hits the media again. But at least their bodies were buried. But I, I seem to recall that I think they were they I, they were probably taken out there and murdered there. Okay? All four of them. Okay? And let's remember, whoever the a-hole scumbag is who did this, murdered a a, a, a two-year-old and a five-year-old little boy with a blunt instrument. Jeez. Okay, let's let's keep that in mind. Aside from all this spookery and skullduggery, you, you know we're dealing with an an a-hole. Okay, a butthole who would do something like that. You know, um, but whatever the case is, this family, I'm pretty sure, were murdered on that spot, which meant on that energy. Okay, and here's. Here's what I point out about this. Um, You know, people murder people for a variety of reasons that are relatively mundane, okay? Usually money or because they're pissed off about something or both, okay? So whoever, whoever wanted, uh, you know, the the husband and the wife and, you know, dead, okay? They killed the kids just to kill them. Whoever wanted them dead wasn't necessarily the one, you know, who had to have pulled, you know, beat them over the head or done the deed. Okay. So, um, so if the person who wanted them dead knows nothing about this Hecate ley line empire of the wheel type magic. Okay. It's very possible that they hired someone to do the killing. Now, even that killer doesn't need to know about all this dark magic stuff and the ley lines and the Hecate and this, that, and the other. Okay. But, What if that killer, he's a contract killer, so he does this for a lot of clients, it could be he could have some type of loose association with people who do know about this magic, okay? And and let's say, for speculation, he has kind of an open deal with them, an open contract with them. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, I've got to kill uh, this family. Is there any particular place you want it done? Okay, because let's say they pay the hitman a little extra, you know, the, you know, he gets paid by the person who wants the people dead. But let's say he gets paid by this other group that does know about the magic. Okay, let's say he gets paid by them to kill his his targets 
in a specific spot. He doesn't care about the magic. He don't give a crap. It means nothing to him except if they want them killed in a dirt hole out in the middle of the desert in this exact latitude, longitude spot, he's going to do it because they're going to give him $50,000. Okay? So I lay up that scenario that even if whoever gets convicted of wanting them dead and, you know, whatever, does, you know, didn't know about this magic, okay, and whoever actually did the killing didn't know about this magic, I'm arguing that there's only two possibilities after that, that somebody who knew about this magic was involved in the murders of this family and saw to it that this family was murdered on that site. Okay, I, I, that's possibility one. I can Number totally two, believe that because it's, it, okay. it's all ritual. Well, no, Yeah, exactly. It's all yeah. ritual. Number, number two, this is where it gets really spooky and weird. Number two is there could be nobody involved with this magic that was involved with this murder. Yeah. Okay? And it could be that the place drew the act. Yes. Yes. We've... We've talked about this kind of stuff. Yeah. I talked about this on the Where Did the Road Go. Um, mm -hmm. The we've we we talked about Gettysburg. I don't know if mm -hmm. you know Tim Tim Renner, who's going to be our mm -hmm. next guest next week, but he lives out there in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And we uh, went to Gettysburg with him last year, and we were talking about how that it's almost like there's weird. There's weird things going on in Gettysburg. Not only the ghost mm -hmm. stuff, but you've got Bigfoot right. sightings and just strange lights and all these kind of strange things that are going on mm -hmm. in that one area. Sure. And Tim has this thesis that the battle is happening because the, the armies were drawn to that spot. The battlefield Not the other way around. Kind of power, yeah. 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 It's, it's, that is something that since we're on this theme, this discussion has to be considered. See, and I argue this in Empire of the Wheel. It could be that in 1915, what somebody was doing with the seven sacrificial murders, which I believe these deaths were in 1915, it could be that one of the things they were doing was priming the, the uh, grid, okay? And so what happens, what does that mean? So that for decades, a century or more after what they did is done, that means this grid of energy um, has been primed, it's been, it's been spiked, and it, needs, yeah. it, it wants to be fed. Is that the same as emanatizing the eschaton? Is that <laughs> no, but we're, we're going back and forth between the chicken and the egg, and this is really good because a lot of people do not, you know, yeah. well, it's either one or the other, but this is, I think, yeah. closer to what uh, reality wait, is. It, the third possibility is that it could be both. Yeah. Yeah. It, it needs to be fed, it wants to be fed, and there are those willing to feed it. Now, if it is the for, if it is a concentration of the former, it being some kind of ritualized, uh, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of phenomenon being this kind of organized, ritualized thing, do you, does that relate to that down an idea that might be a Hoffman idea, unfortunately, of revelation of the method that by mm -hmm. doing these ritualistic uh, things and by witnessing them on a subconscious level, we give consent, which consent is the biggest part of this, yeah. uh, you know, 
suppose alchemical transformation of the the psyche. I guess. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I this is why he's co-hosted um, his questions like that. Just to <laughs> let you know. Um. Yeah, there's some there's some bizarre dance that that goes on between us and this thing we're talking about. It's as if there is a very old and ancient agreement between us and them um, that something in our subconscious, we just say these weird things just are, and that's just the way it is. And that might be a product of a very um, old and ancient consent that was given that kind of uh, continues um, in our subconscious because, you know, there, there, here's one thing I've noticed, you know, we have this concept of the yin and the yang, the, you know, the white and the black, the give and the take, right. The concept of, and that leads to the concept of, um, uh, for everything you achieve, there must be something sacrificed, right? So in my experience, um, and I've only done a little bit of analysis on this. It's kind of disturbing. Um, and, and I'll tell you why it's disturbing after I get out the concept is um, it's almost as if when you're in the Hecate zone there that what she will do or what it does is remind you that, okay, um, for every step forward – for every thing you learn, something will be lost. So that something, you know, as something else is gained, something must be lost. It's like the way of things. So one thing that you notice is, um, well, I'll, I'll just blurt it out. The, the concern that you have, the thing that you come slamming into like a brick wall, okay, is the possibility, okay, if I move forward, if I gain this, if I make this next step forward and upward, who or what will die? And, you know, it's like, okay, so you start thinking about those things like, oh, my God, is is my dog going to die for me to be able to? Is someone in your family or your friends going to be taken as kind of um, – it's like the reality, the fabric of reality, the universe demands um, a fee, okay? And, yeah. and that fee must be something sacrificed, something lost. You know, and so, <laughs> you know, it's not something you're doing on purpose. It's just something you, you come running into and you realize, oh, my God, is this the way it is? Have you and seen- then you begin to say, do I really want the enlightenment? Do I really want the advancement or the progress? Because if it means, you know, this sacrifice like that, you're, you, it, it makes it <laughs> it makes things weird. Have you seen the movie The Box? No. Um, it's the movie the same guy did Donnie Darko, but uh, oh, I'm like, familiar with that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Cameron Diaz is in it. I can't remember the uh, okay. who, who else is in it, but but mm-hmm. uh, Frank Langella shows up at this couple's house with this box. Mm. I remember when it came out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like, like I remember this now. If they open the box, mm-hmm. s- they can get what they want. But somebody mm-hmm. is going to die. Ah, uh, yeah. Essentially, yeah. The, when that exactly, yeah. and when that movie came out, I remember seeing the trailer. I remember thinking, "Oh man, yep, somebody's making us a, a movie out of this." And um, 
Sounds like it's one of just, the oldest it, stories there probably is. I mean, sure. Well, wh- when you ask your question, what was I saying? Is is all this um, something that we as humanity uh, um, gave long ago that consent yeah, to? Yeah. So that's why it's the oldest story there is because. You know, did we consent to this system? In a way, when you when you think about it in terms of you know, like reincarnation, if you get in the system where you keep coming back, coming back, or you know, or until you advance to the point where you don't have to, whatever the case may be, in this, you know, there are things that come with reincarnation that um, kind of suck, but it seems like we agree to because. You know, the other side of the coin is so worth it or seems worth it at the time you choose to come back. But like a know? balance always has to be maintained. A balance. Yeah. Yes, there must it has always to get back be a to balance. an equilibrium. Yeah, if you get this enlightenment, you got to sacrifice something. And then, you know, it's it can get it's it's a it can be a quandary in your mind. <laughs> You know. Well, let's talk about something I was we were I was <laughs> meaning to talk about. We, <laughs> mm-hmm. This has been great. I mean, really. I mean, this this is yeah. This has been fascinating. It, it really has. But I do want to ask you about the New Mexico Observatory. Oh, but all that brouhaha <laughs> over that. I know that yeah, you kept up with that I, pretty well. I was going do not on. think there's anything to it. Yeah, and I haven't uh, talked about it in a few months because there's really nothing. I mean, if anybody's still out there making hay out of this. They're oh, I really, think it's totally dropped. Yeah, I hope so because there's nothing to it. Look, my source—I can say it. I, I won't identify him by name, but my source was personally close to folks um, who know the guy who was arrested for. Okay, and I'll leave it at that. And I had heard about that before it was announced. When I said in my videos. Look, folks, I've been told it is a criminal law enforcement situation. I was told specifically about the guy having downloaded the porn. And I and I knew about that from my source um, when I made that video before it was announced. And that's why, you know, was trying to say, hey, folks, seriously, you know, and of course, I have my FBI sources and local law enforcement sources in New Mexico and, and such that, um, you know, but people wanted to run with it. Um People wanted it. They, they, we've gotten to that point where people want everything that comes along to be the big real thing. Yeah. And so they're willing to just, you know, it's like a, you know, you're making a pie and you're rolling that crust thin and you're just rolling it thin, 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 thinner. And it, you know that pie is not going to hold up. That crust ain't going to hold the pie. But you just roll it thinner. That's what these people are doing. And, yeah. It's unfortunate. What was it? It turned out to be that the janitor was downloading mm-hmm. porn. Yeah, the janitor had been downloading porn. Did he have a gun or something? Was he trying to... No. No, he flipped out and he told the people running the place that there was a, a, a madman, a killer on the loose on the site. Okay. And, there, and so, you know... Was that to try to uh, deflect from... I, I don't from yeah he was yeah from from looking him up yeah exactly and then what happened was um, the FBI agent who had been investigating a uh, child porn ring a child porn ring in New Mexico uh-huh. found a uh, a digital connection between what the guy was doing and what the ring used and so 
you know, that's why the FBI was keenly interested in what was going on up there. And the whole thing, I mean, oh, and God forbid they flew a helicopter up there. You know how this community is about was helicopters. It black? Was it black? <laughs> uh, it, yes, it was a dark operational helicopter. And it's like, oh, my God, let, you know, let a helicopter be involved. And, uh, you know, and what gets me is this was one of those stories where all the cocky loudmouths come out. Well, I know better than you. Right? You know, I know what's going on up there. You're a fool. And it's really the, And then, of course, with time, we see that it's nothing what the know-it-alls say it was. And um, it was, you know, the more and I'm putting quotes around the word mundane because what that idiot was doing is not a mundane thing. Um, but, yeah, it was much more a gritty real world crime and the guy yeah. spun up and then people were making a big deal about oh the town was closed down and the post office right okay i've been up there i've been through What's that, that place area called? i can't remember the name of it uh sun sunspot. yes yeah i can't remember sunspot, sunspot. Yeah. yeah okay the the so-called town is essentially uh, essentially part of the site Okay, and it was built up to support the people who were working at the site when it was first built, because even today, the nearest real town, I think, is is 20 miles away. Okay, and in and when you're snowed in up there, well, you do the math, you know, when you're snowed in at the top of that mountain, 20 miles, forget about it, you know. Um, So that's why the town built up and there was a post office there. And um, so it was really it was just really not the thing that people thought it was or were some people were hoping it would be and then you know you had all the and you know the the people who do what i do a lot of the time come in and analyze what's in the area you know let's look at this big picture and i did that i considered all that but on this one folks i was was able to be full journalist mode and i happened to have personal sources um that could fill me in on what was going on with this. And, um, you know, it's just what it is. Walter, do you have any thoughts on the latest stuff with, uh, TTSA? Or uh, I, can, I continue to think that it's BS. Uh, I, I think that it's a big, you know, they started a media company. Um, you know, it's great. They want to do books, TV shows, and movies. I'm all for that. I mean, we all love this, you know, UFOs and related things. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, even when there's bad ones, you can't have too many because it's just it's cool. You know, we'll find the good ones and we pick them out from the bad. But, um, you know, as far as the whole TTSA, you know, the fanboy worship and they're they are going to usher in disclosure. Well, you know, what? I think it's been over a year now or about a year that they announced their existence um, from what I understand to essentially an empty theater that, you know, they had cameras set up in. They, they, you know, they made it look like they, they, some people (laughs) gave the impression that it was in front of an audience and apparently it wasn't, I don't know. Blink-182 fans. Yeah. You know, but here's what I think right now. I've honestly come after this last year, I've come to the position. Um, I really do think Tom DeLonge himself is sincere. Okay. I I think he started this with, I think that too. Yeah, Absolutely. I think I let me put it this way. I suspect that some spook agency guys playing perception management games um, got the best of him 
And they're the ones that have their tendrils into his organization. And they're really the ones that are, you know, kind of pulling the strings and making stuff happen where real world, so to speak, UFO stuff is going on and, and the conversation. Um, that's what I think is going on with it. And I, you know, I still am convinced that Luis Elizondo is a contract employee of the CIA working operationally um, with TTSA. I, I, that's my suspicion. That's my big speculation out on a limb. That's what I think's going on with Elizondo. He retired on a Friday, started right up on a Monday as a contractor for well, the you, CIA. You know this stuff because you used to be in that world. You know, I worked in that world, and I know exactly exactly yeah. how that works. Okay, what I'm when I talk about the contractor relationship thing, I, that's not speculation on my part. Okay, I know how that works. I worked with these people who did that. Okay, um, and it is a fact. It's a real thing. And, you know, let somebody say, oh, you're giving away trade secrets. Kiss my ass. Every movie in Hollywood gives away, you know, and the spy <laughs> world gives away trade secrets. So, you know, what the hell? Yeah. Um, uh, it's uh, what gets you in trouble is when you specify um, things that are entities that are undercover and people that are undercover. That's where you get in trouble. The um, right. the fact that they do this is, you know, that's not the, the thing. So that's what I personally, right now, unless unless I'm convinced otherwise, that's my number one suspicion about Elizondo. And, and also the fact that he's a contractor instead of a staff employee, he now has the freedom where if he gets himself made a big luminary in the UFO media world, he's allowed to do that, you know, and since he's retired – and he can augment his income if he becomes a big star of his own reality show, which I think they're getting ready to come out with. Well, okay, that's that's gravy. Okay, that's icing on his cake. Mm-hmm. But his cake, I suspect, is working as a contract employee for the CIA, taking direction from them in what gets so you know released, revealed, disclosed. And I think that's what TTSA is up to. It, it notice how nobody is in the. There's nobody from uh, your old organization the afosi nobody evolved there either like it's 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 cia people yes it's cia uh, people it's it's cia people you know kit green's in the mix we remember you know in mirage men uh, kit green was the only american that those guys loved the rest of us were a bunch of dastardly <laughs> creepy you know lying a-holes you know um standing you know standing uh single-handedly between the public and, and the truth about ETs. I mean, please. Um, but uh, they loved Kit Green. Um, Do you think that that has some kind of inner agency rivalry aspect to it, there, Walter? Like the like people in the CIA, they they don't well, respect the Brits, military intelligence intelligence people. Well, yeah, uh, uh, you know, most of the on the ground CIA people, really, most of the on the ground CIA people I ever worked with. Um, they're not like that. Yeah. Here's where the assholes in the Central Intelligence Agency are. Okay, they're at Langley. They're usually sitting at a desk. They're analysts. They're middle management, maybe upper ma- and upper management types. Okay, that's where you find the uh, those who perceive themselves as blue bloods who look down on everybody. Yeah. Um, so you know that's the kind of um, people. Essentially, we're talking about. But also remember, in the case of like Mirage Men, they're Brits. 
Okay, they're British guys who, who, who made that. Okay, and there's Brits in the, not all, because, you know, we know a lot of cool Brits, Nick Redfern and, and stuff and other people. But, you know, there's some of these British guys, they just hate the U.S. military. Okay, so especially if you're U.S. military intel, counterintel, you know, whatever, you're the bad guy. But, you know, apparently they have no problem with CIA, but they don't like and they particularly don't like Air Force, you know, because, ooh, the evil Air Force OSI is the the organization, as I said before, that's blocking disclosure to all the people. I mean, uh, there's people who believe that and, uh, uh, they play to that. It's like, come on, guys. Yorktown was was over 200 years ago. It's time to. Yeah, Yorktown, and I'm sorry that 18, I'm sorry that you know the War of 1812 didn't get back your real estate either. You know, um, it's oh, good God. Well, you don't can thank good old Andrew on, Jackson for that one. Yeah, don't right get me started on uh, on 19th century England. Um, good Lord. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it's. It is what it is, and it, it, people have to recognize it. But you know, um, it's a bunch of it, it's from what I understand, more than one CIA uh, psyche psychiatry division, so to speak, that's involved with TTSA. Well, come on, <laughs> these are the this is the division that came up with MK Ultra or developed it from you know what the Nazis had uh, had uh, started growing it yeah. to. You know, what's this whole alloys thing? With the this what alloys the metal alloys like i don't like what metal alloys are they talking about like ttsa comes out with this stuff that they've got metal oh, oh. alloys from spacecraft or supposed well spacecraft. you know bigelow didn't bigelow say that he was aware of something like that too or, or yeah the, or yeah, i think they, he did. yeah there were they were storing it uh, you know um they're always they always dance with stuff like that because oh there's these weird alloys well you know if you look closely you're going to come to find out that sure there might be some interesting alloy but you know you're going to find that it's something that its origin is very earthbound that you know it, it was probably just developed by very earthbound organizations on some type of classified or proprietary level and that's what was used in whatever it was that actually crashed, that they retrieved. And what they like to do, remember, they're playing to their audience. They're playing to their audience, but they never quite come out and confirm that it's extraterrestrial or otherworldly. They just they just um, play with the question like, oh, I don't know. What do you think it could be? And they know <laughs> that this community, the people out there that just you know suck on the teat of mystery – um, you know, just love to hear that. It's like, give me more, give me more. And, you know, keep it vague because if you keep it vague, if you keep it vague, you never really have to give an answer. You never have to, you never have to have that, that adult moment where you realize, or you, you have to come to a conclusion where, or you have to accept that something's not what the child in you wants it to be. See, that's yeah. why they keep it vague. And that's an old you know, manipulation and, and handling trick. That's every time Luis Elizondo dances around when pushed about, you know, hey, is it ET or the, he's just employing, you know, the the ooh, uh, it could be he, it's it's a tactic. I'm telling you. And that's what they're doing. And there's people that are just 
eating it up. And I have to say that, you know, most of them, not all of them, but most of them that are in the TTSA uh, fan box, uh, I hate to say it, you know, are guys that are, you know, younger than us that haven't been around long enough to know the basic history of ufology and all the other crap that's come before. And they say, they get all mad at you. There's one guy in particular that gets his panties in a bunch, you know, and uh, who says he knows all that stuff, but they sure don't act like they do because they'd be a lot more wary of TTSA if they really had a grasp on all the other tomfoolery that's come along before this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, you have to look at the history. You have to look at what intelligence agencies have done. You have to look at the history mm-hmm. of, in in particular, of how the UFO meme, this whole idea, has been used to cover up craft in in the past. And and I've said it many times is that I believe what's really going on is this push to militarize space. And that now we can have this as like a spoke a smoke screen. So now when we see something weird, unusual, it they'll people will say, Oh, well, it's some unknown thing. We don't know what it is. But it could it possibly be ours? I think that's where this is going. And then it and then that's another situation where it it could be both. It could be, yeah, yeah they're trying to push for the military militarization of space, but there could be stuff there that isn't ours um and and then that gets into okay so is therefore in that uh fact that there could that possible fact that there could be something that's not ours is that's what drive is that is what i'm uh, sorry i'm stumbling is that what's driving the need for the militarization yeah yeah definitely you know or all or the not. other stuff you've written about with the or- in origin and the whole secret space program yeah, idea. I think, yeah, I think we've had a a secret a classified manned space program since the fifties. Now I know I'm not saying it's Starfleet. I'm saying it was pretty much parallel to no what Blue we saw Avians. NASA doing. No, no, none of that. Hell no. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, and and it's up there. I think it's up there. But when we talk the militarization. We're talking about an open, everybody knows about it, Space Force kind of thing where, yeah, okay, it becomes obvious that we have one. And and for the record, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm all for this. I'm all for if there's, you know, if I'm right about, I and others are right about a classified manned space program, secret space program. Uh, I have no problem with it existing at all. And Space Force, please, God, bring it on, you know, um, because it's yeah. totally cool. Because I, for one, think... Folks, for those out there who are the nesters, okay, that want to weave baskets and, you know, cook pumpkin and avocado salads and things like that and, um, uh, you know, uh, gather eggs. Um, I know they don't like the idea of Space Force, but, you know, it's inevitable. Human- where I was going with this was it's inevitable. Humankind, the majority of us, essentially, it's inevitable a bunch of us are going to leave this planet as soon as we can and go to other worlds. I think a bunch of us, our ancestors came from other worlds. I think it's the way of things. Okay, so this is just a natural, as we attain space travel with the civilization we have, it's going to be inevitable. A bunch of us are going to be like, hey, let's go to the next world. And space travel is going to become a normal thing. We better do it quick. Why? 
Well, because things aren't looking too good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean like the planet dying in some cataclysm? I mean, just uh, the Earth becoming... I think just <laughs> the end of civilization is more oh, likely. Oh, you yeah. guys... You guys are, you guys are, that's another teat that people like to suck on. Uh, the climate, the okay. climate change Look, stuff. Oh, cl- please, please. Oh, what did they come out with recently? The, oops, the report. that science yeah. was bullshit too. I yeah. mean, folks, that, that's, uh, look, um, have there been cataclysms before? Yeah. Will there be another cataclysm? Probably. Um, but you know, what, what we got to do is we got to, you know, we don't know when, that's going to happen. Uh, an asteroid could slam us right now and screw things up. Yeah, sure. But essentially, short of that, um, I think we're going to have plenty of time to get this thing off the ground, and as we should. And I, I just think that, you know, the nesters need to calm down because it, it's going to serve their desires. If most people want to get on rocket ships and leave this planet, then it reduces the population and then all the nesters can have their happy garden, you know. Well, you, um, aren't we just going to start fighting over space and then we won't get anywhere because we'll just be fighting each other in space? we got more room to fight, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wait, but, but, first, but first, there's going to be so much space and it, it, everybody can just get off this planet and go to their own world, okay? Well, there's a lot People of resources who, on Earth, too, but we don't, you know, split them up and, you know, figure it out with each other. Yeah, well, that's that's another reason why we need to get off this planet to get out from each other's, uh, you know, get out of each other's hair. You, you know, this uh, we're, we're just trying to look at this. We all want to cram into metropolitan areas, okay? And you got a bunch of people that, let's face it, have different philosophical outlooks, right? Okay, that uh, you know, we're forcing we're forcing cultures that really, uh, you know, are just better off leaving each other the hell alone to live together and deal with each other. Well, one thing, one thing out of many that that space travel will do, opening it up to the masses, is to allow people to spread out a little bit again, okay? And this group that worships God this way and thinks like this, they can go off and do their own planet. And the group that hates them so much they can go off in the other direction and do their own planet. The problem is when you have these insidious, nefarious human beings that it just it just sends, you know, flaming lightning up their ass to think that they can't tell someone else what to do and how to do it. Okay? Um, that's where the problem comes in, okay, is all the collectivists, all the hive minders. Um, they, it just burns them to think that somebody doesn't want to live the way they want to live and somebody thinks differently than they do and and they've got to, they can't let you go. They got to control you. That's where the problem is. Well, yeah. What you're talking about is this idea of, of individualism versus collectivism and this whole idea that, you know, 400 years ago when we had a lower population on this planet and people could escape somewhere. Yeah. And space and is going to allow have us to do their that own, and, and have their they they put space between themselves, and if they had mm-hmm. a disagreement, well, you went you went somewhere, you went else. somewhere else, right? Yeah, right. Especially early and America. That's the idea of the frontier. Yeah. I mean, that's what a frontier yeah. is essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And believe me, that 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 does. I'm definitely in the camp of individualism. I'm definitely in the camp of collectivism can rot in hell, and that's a war that I'll gladly fight 
as as staunchly and viciously as needs to be fought. Well, I, mean, I, I agree with you, Walter. <laughs> I, I, and, and I, that, I'm an individualist, me, too. Yeah, that's going to drive a lot of um, the masses going to space because you got a lot of people that are fed up with this collectivist crap being forced down their throats. Okay, and if they have, it's going to come down to this. It's going to come down to this. The next major conflict in the world is going to truly be the war between the collectivist and the individualist philosophy. Okay, now, um, if we want to avoid this. If we want to avoid this, then both sides need to be pushing for um, uh, the masses to be able to travel into space because that will alleviate and prevent it. I mean, are the, okay. how are the masses going to be the ones to go to outer space, though? It's, it's going to happen eventually. It's going to happen eventually. Yes, it's going to start Do you think with, that privatization will, will yes. encourage that? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, you know, you're going to have these privatization... Uh, commerce is going to go out in space, and what are they going to need? They're going to need people to work the mines. Uh, you know, they're going to—they're they're, not—they're not going to be able to do everything automated and robots forever or completely. Okay, they're going to—they're going to need people to do things. They're, and so, therefore, what are they going to do? They're going to do it like they did in the old days. They're going to colonize. Okay, now here comes the people saying, "Oh, but what about the people who already live on the other planets?" Okay, we—we we have. You know, discuss the, the mistakes that were made in colonization in our history. Okay, there are ways to colonize without making those same mistakes. Okay, so we got to have faith. We got to have a little faith that we've learned from our lessons. And the cynics and the naysayers and the baby whiners who who just insist that we'll never learn. We just need to kind of put a bottle in their mouth, tell them to shut up, and proceed <laughs> with you know life okay, and reality at some. At some point, the whiners and foot stompers, you know, just need to be told to shut up and get out of the way, you know, of people getting stuff done. On that note, I think that's a good place to end it. Um, Walter, uh, <laughs> real quick, uh, tell Who every... am I pissed off? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll let You're you know. Get some interest... I'll let you know. I'll You're... just direct them all to you. Yeah, you're going to get some interesting <laughs> comments on this one, I'm sure. Uh, that son of a bitch. Uh, tell everybody where they can find your books and also um, your web presence and uh, an okay. update on what's going on with Empire of the Will, the the the, uh, the series. Ah, yes. Um, the, the Empire of the Will TV series development um, continues. Uh, it, it's, it's just in that early... It's... It's being worked by the producer and the writer. What they're doing is they're fine-tuning the, the script for the pilot is what they're doing. And being a writer, I understand how that is. You want that to be as perfect as you can make it, as good as you can possibly make it, you know, um, for when you go to the next step. And that's what they're doing. The writer is, is working on that. They're revising, you know, doing what they need to do, all their magic. The producer's putting together you know, the, the, just doing what the producer does. So it's progressing, um, exactly the speed and the direction it's supposed to be progressing. So I'm very encouraged and excited about that. Um, my books are only print on demand at one place, lulu.com. If you go to lulu.com, L U L U.com and you put in my name, um, or the title of one of my books, it'll bring you to my what's called the author spotlight. That's my publishing company page. My fiction is there too, so make sure you look at the description of the books 
Um, but my fiction, my pulp fiction, as well as the uh, nonfiction books that I write are there. I also have the blog, empireofthewheel.blogspot.com, which I update with essays and commentary every once in a while. I, I will hopefully be doing more of that soon. And um, that's really... Uh, uh, oh, I also have the Walter Bosley channel at YouTube that um, folks yes. can uh, follow me there and check that out. So, I actually got to appear on one of the videos. Yes, that's right. Over there by Cora Stanton's grave. Yeah, I didn't have my my phone turned the right way, so it's sideways, but what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent, Walter. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to close this section out, but we'll be right back to close out this uh, longer-than-usual show on Conspiranormal. So that was a very long show. Very long, very deep. Yeah. Um, I want to thank Dr. Wysong for coming on in the first part. And I want to thank Walter Bosley coming on in the second part. Decided on this one that I wanted to do uh, an extra length show for the, for the audience out there. And we did a Patreon segment with Walter. Where we read yes. an interesting story that Surfiel found. That we are going to talk about in a later episode. But for now, as Patreons, which we got two more over the weekend. Oh, awesome. We, uh, we are using to um, give you something a little bit special and a little bit in advance. So, uh, Sergio, what's your thoughts about uh, what you heard from Walter there? Oh, it was real cool. I know uh, the conversation kind of took a life of its own, and we kind of went down a lot of different avenues. So I was not expecting that, but yeah, those are some of my favorite aspects of his writing. So it was a great show. Because we wanted to talk about, primarily I wanted to talk about the Secret Space Program stuff, Corey Good trying to copyright the Secret Space Program phrasing as his own that he was going to copyright that but uh, we didn't get to talk about that we we went down this kind of like esoteric rabbit hole so i'm real happy that we did with we did yeah. that he probably doesn't need any more attention yeah that's true uh, i would i would pretty much say so so i think we're going to wrap it up there guys uh, next time we've got timothy renner coming on and i also do want to thank those two new patreons that we got um one was glenn glenn and also Catherine. so thanks guys thank you guys thanks for for being aboard and you're you're getting you're gonna get something pretty much right away with this show um i hope that you're enjoying the rest of the stuff that we have on there and there's a lot there so if someone wants to go and become a patreon support the show go to www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal and also, if you want to leave a one-time donation, which we don't get very many of those, that's at our website, www.conspiranormal.com. And that goes to an, our own account. So, if you don't want the recurring fee. So, is there anything else that you wanted to add, Sergio, for this show? Or? Oh, no, not much. Just, yeah, please uh, help us out. We uh, 
Studio B needs some upgrades. So. Studio B need, <laughs> does need some upgrades. Next week, we probably should be over at Rob's, I think. Um, we'll try to uh, keep him awake. But uh, I'm really excited to be talking to Timothy Renner. And uh, join us next week, guys, for another fun, action-packed episode of Conspiranormal! Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.